0: You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins.
1: We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch, And it has been a while. We've been traveling and I have been to India and back and Gary's been to the NGA and back and a couple of other trips. And uh, we finally found some time here to do another episode. So... Thanks for being patient, and we didn't drop off the face of the earth. We're back, and we're back with uh, very interesting things, but uh, Gary, how's life been?
1: It has been good. Busy, which is always a good thing. Uh, just got back from the NGA show uh, last night, uh, another uh, great show. It was good to see a lot of people in person without masks, so it was nice. a uh, quite an event. That is
0: fantastic. You can actually now see read their lips
1: like that. That's right. That's right. You you now know who you're talking to. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, at the the Retail
0: Perch, we try to bring you all things retail, try to focus more on the supermarket side of things, uh, talking about technology, new trends, insights, what have you. And we've talked to all kinds of people on the show, from academics to industry experts to entrepreneurs to retailers. And today we happen to have a very distinguished gentleman amongst us as our guest. Michael Solomon comes to us from St. Joseph's University. He's a professor of marketing there. And I was telling him just before we started Recording this that if I read his entire bio, you might take up all 35 minutes of this episode. So needless to say, he's extremely distinguished and he has done numerous things. Uh, I think the chief among which is written books that are a must read for almost every marketing student. So he's also been a keynote speaker, a number of events, multiple countries around the world and welcome, Michael, welcome to the
2: Retail Perch. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, that introduction is perfectly fine. <laughs>
0: Uh, Thank you. I know, I know know it's short. You know, I I have the same problem when I'm trying to introduce Gary to it's you guys do so much that it make it tough to actually get some material in. But anyway, so so You know, I I was listening to a couple of podcasts that Michael was on, a couple of your speeches and read some quick summaries of your books, uh, Michael, here in preparation for this podcast. And I find uh, some of your insights fascinating. And I'm curious to see how we're going to discuss that in light of the food industry, especially your new book, The New Chameleons. I found that fascinating. But if you can, maybe take a few minutes, give us a little Give our listeners a little background about where you come from and your journey up to this point.
2: Thanks, Shekhar. And uh, it's great to be here. Let me, I'll tell you quickly about myself. Um, I'm, I'm a psychologist by training, but uh, I've always been a business school professor. And I hate to say it for about 40 years at this point, teaching at different universities. And my specialty is consumer psychology. So I focus a lot on the deep meanings of brands and branding, and how consumers use brands, including many, many grocery products, uh, literally as a way to construct their identities. And so uh, I've had the opportunity over the years to work with with a lot of great companies, many of them in the in the fashion space, but uh, also automotive, financial, and and so on. Uh, really, anything that. That faces the customer is uh, is, is okay on, on my part, you know. Um, and as, as you mentioned, I, I do write books. My, my textbook on consumer behavior, I'm happy to say, is the most widely used around the world. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm now in the process of writing the 14th edition of, of that. So that's been a long, strange trip. And uh, my latest book that that you mentioned is The New Chameleon's how to categorize consumers who defy categorization. And really that has to do with some of the major disruptions in consumer behavior and shopper behavior that that I've been watching over, even since before the pandemic started, you know, seeing major disruptions in the ways that we think about our customers, and, and more importantly, noticing that many marketers haven't figured out that these disruptions have occurred and that they need to change what, they're, what they do in order to stay current with that. And you know, we can get into the weeds on that if you'd like. Uh, that's, in a nutshell, who I am. I'm currently at St. Joseph's University, and many of your viewers probably are familiar, by the way, with my university because it's one of the epicenters for the grocery industry. Uh, That's right. uh, Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I I believe that the top rated food marketing program, we are, we're all part of the same uh, business school. So, you know, have had some opportunity to interact with some grocery people for sure. No,
1: it's great to have you with us. So, you know, maybe, uh, Michael, a question for you before we drill down on some of these topics, but just at a higher level, you know, my sense is that brands you know, whether they be fashion brands or CPG brands, uh, take the, the notion of, you know, branding, their identity, all of that. I don't know if I want to say more seriously, but they look at it very differently than I have found retailers look at themselves as a brand. W- would you agree with that? Or how, how do you see that? What differences have you seen?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I assume our, uh... You're focusing on the grocery sector when you say, for the most part, yes, okay, yeah, because I, certainly, you know, in the fashion area, some of the stores, some of the retailers have figured it out. But I, I totally agree with you, and you know, other than the occasional Wegman surprise or something, I, I've been really shocked. Maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but I've been kind of shocked at the lack of creativity on the, kind of on the merchandising side that I've yeah. seen because food shopping, I mean. When you get into the psychology of food and beverage, there's there's nothing richer than that. And to say that, you know, this is just more practical than, let's say, apparel or something, I think is is totally wrong.
1: Yeah, I I, I would agree. Food, retailing, food, merchandising is a rich environment, right, that I think certainly lends itself to experiential shopping, the, the notion of, of branding and identity and so on. But, you know, as you say, other than like a, a Wegmans occasionally or, you know, maybe a couple others, most retailers just don't seem to, to understand that.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at the retail apocalypse, I'm not sure if that has officially happened, but you'll remember we were talking about that even pre-COVID. Uh, you know, if, when you look at the stores, and I'm talking more generally now, when you look at the stores that that went under, you could understand why because they they really weren't telling a story. They they seemed to, they seemed to think of themselves as a repository of goods. That people where people go and pick up their goods and take them home. And, you know, the reality is today there, obviously, I don't have to tell you guys, there's no reason for me even to do that, you know, right. You think delivered. So if I'm going to bother to go out to a store, it, it better be a good experience to justify that. Yeah. And it could be because there's so much to work with. It's it's remarkable. You know? Yeah, no, that's very true.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to your point, uh, Michael, you know, I've had a few stores, uh, supermarkets that we shop at in my neighborhood. And, I haven't really seen in a dozen years any change in the way they communicate with their customers or represent their brand. Uh, given that there's been such a huge shift in there's a whole new generation that's now shopping in these stores. They shop differently. They buy different kind of products. The frequency of shop has changed. The kind of products they're looking for is changed. And it's surprising that a lot of these stores simply haven't adapted their messaging and their branding to attract that new generation. Maybe they just feel we're here and there's nobody else coming in and there is a sense of status quo. Uh, you know, I guess you can get comfortable with that uh, because they, they're they almost like anchors in a, in a community, right? Whereas a lot of the other retail businesses that come in, little shops or boutique shops or restaurants, they tend to have a much shorter lifespan than your local supermarket
2: right yeah yeah you know i guess my observation as an outsider from the industry is that uh is that the the, the retail marketers tend to sweat the small stuff but not the big stuff and not, by small stuff i mean trying to figure out exactly where on the shelf to place a, to place an item for maximum roi but not really thinking about the bigger picture of what that entire experience should be from the consumer's point of view, and again, there are so many. I could teach an entire semester on on just the the meanings of food and drink, and 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 why we why we consume this stuff that have reasons that have nothing to do with the taste. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that, there's
1: your next book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it, it it's scary. There's people people want to be especially now um, if they do venture in, into these grocery stores. They want to be educated, they want to be stimulated, they want to be entertained, and and there's no reason not to do that. And, you know, it it's, I mean, on the one level, you know, this this may be a good example of the disconnect between academia and, and industry because you know there's there's so much solid evidence that's the research evidence that's that's out there that attests to the importance of the context on a purchase on a purchaser's decisions, the, imp- the importance of the environment, whether it's sights or smells or sounds or what have you. Uh, the importance of, of primes in the environment, in other words, subtle cues that push people one way or the other. And some of that work, at least one classic study, as I think of it, probably the most widely cited study, was done in a grocery store. So you know, but but that doesn't seem to make its way over to on the practitioner side, ignoring that environment. And it goes, my point is, it goes way beyond the recognition that point of purchase right there provides a boost in sales, and there's solid evidence for that. Data I've seen say about ten yeah. percent. that's an approximation. But but why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you take advantage of the fact that your especially your younger shoppers are partly interacting with your store shelf and partly they're on Facebook or or Instagram or TikTok or TikTok at the at the very same time. You know, it just yeah. doesn't acknowledge the reality of how people are living their lives today. I believe. Yeah, fully agree with that. You know, I've seen, you
1: know, as I'm sure you have, many uh, brands take that much more seriously and invest, you know, heavily into understanding shopper behavior, both outside and inside the store, you know, the impact of that in-store experience, you know, merchandising at point of decision uh, and so on. The trouble is, uh, you know, they're challenged by getting retailers
2: to co-invest with them and then scale some of those different things. Now, I you know, I understand it's easy to point fingers when you don't have to write the checks, but I, I think there's, I, frankly, I think the grocery industry is ripe for dis- disruption. And I don't, I don't mean just food delivery. I'm talking about in-store In store, Because when when you look at what's happening in other sectors as they're starting to to figure this stuff out, uh, fashion leading the way, as you might expect, but, you know, high tech stores, Apple, and so on, obviously, as well. Um, There's so much that can be done here. I mean, if I can give you a quick example, one, one thing that amazes me is how little upselling is done in a grocery environment. And it's a perfect place for that you know i've I've written a lot about this notion that what what I say is is that uh people buy horizontally, but marketers sell vertically and what I mean is that you know for example a uh, a marketer sells a hot dog, but a customer buys a picnic lunch you right. know <laughs> and that's what I call a product constellation you know a set of products that that go together and and other than you know a few demos of smart shopping carts where you, you know you scan the hot dogs and indeed it prints out a coupon for mustard there's very little horizontal thinking that's going on you know how to how is what a person's doing in aisle 1 going to influence what they do in aisle 4 it's tremendous
1: yeah and and, and shaker you know almost a real time example here of this the disruption or transformation that can be coming to the in-store experience. Bloomberg just released literally less than an hour ago uh, a story about how Amazon is going to be closing all its bookstores, uh, four-star stores, pop-up kiosks, and instead focused purely on brick-and-mortar grocery, and it's just walkout technology. You, you wow. know, you, you think about, and I think we've touched on it in different episodes, but you know, how the how they just walk out technology, you know, using computer vision tech, et cetera, transforms their shopping experience. You know, I think Amazon's got a fairly good handle on this.
0: Yeah. So, Michael, uh, going through the synopsis of your New Chameleons book, and there's a little, I think, two-minute video on YouTube that's also there about the book. You talk about uh, some shoppers who are unsegmentable, I guess. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and I'm wondering if that applies to uh, food retail as well, mm-hmm. right? You know, because I know in food retail, of course, you have much more frequent trips and, you know, much richer purchase history as opposed to most other retail verticals. But I'm wondering if that new chameleons applies to that industry as well.
2: Well, you know, I, I think it does. Let, let me tell you why. The, 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 the basic Premise of the book is that there are a series of very, very basic, in fact, dichotomies that that we that we all use. Maya culpa. We all use when we think about people. And and the back the backstory here is that our brains need that that we we love, we have to put things into categories to understand them. The problem is we've overcompensated and. We, we make the mistake, a, a lot of segmentation research makes the mistake of, of assuming that now that you've assigned a segment, acute label, that you understand them, and that furthermore, everyone in that segment will behave homogeneously. And that was a tremendous breakthrough. When General Motors invented that concept back over 100 years ago, that, that was an enormous breakthrough, and it worked quite well for many, many years, because our society continued to be largely homogeneous, you know, three or four TV stations for the whole country We some of us remember those days, right? Now, when you fast forward to today, what you see is that that we've splintered much more heavily. And so we have, I don't know, 5,000 cable stations and, you know, none of them are any good, but, but they're all out there, you know? And so we have to revisit some of these very basic dichotomies. I'll I'll give you a couple of examples that I think are relevant to, to grocery. One of them is male versus female, you know, Uh, and, and you'd have to be living under a rock if you didn't realize the conversation that's going on in our culture today uh, and around the world. Is there such a thing as a dichotomy? And many people are saying today, no, there isn't. Well, let me ask you guys as industry experts, if you're no longer pigeonholing shoppers as male or female, how does that influence your marketing strategies in grocery? My guess would be substantially. You know, other examples that I think are relevant, well, some of them are simple demographics, black versus white. That is, you know, that that's a category that's got a lot of, shall we say, a lot of of gray, old versus young, you know, some very basic values like that. And when you think about attitudes toward food, I my guess would be that that's going to there's going to be some connections there. You know, For example, more and more people are thinking about a vegan lifestyle. How is that mapping onto demographics? Is it only young people? Because our assumption is there's a category. Oh, you must be you must be one of those uh, Gen Y people if you're talking about veganism. And yet we probably know older people who have been vegans for years and years. You know. But the point is that that when we when we assign these labels, then then we kind of we kind of lose sight of the recognition that today it's possible. To literally talk about markets of one and, and we do that anytime we follow up a person, uh, a person's Internet, you know, right. behaviors with a with a with a pop up or an offer or something like that. Uh, so we're doing that. But and, and again, when you talk to consumers, they don't want to be part of a market segment. Right. And I've never met, you know, I, I do this with my undergraduates. I'll say, well, OK, you everybody in here pretty much is, you know, in your 20s, li- live in a large urban area, attend a private liberal arts institution, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, you're all the same. Right. So I can just assume whatever floats one person's boat will do for everybody else. Well, you can imagine they are not happy about that because, you know, this is a generation that did not grow up yearning to work in a cubicle. And, and marketers need, need to understand that. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that, that at some, in some places, uh, you know, simple demographic segmentation is obviously valuable, but it's not the way it used to be when these categories are shifting. And, and there are many others I talk about in the book, you know, parents versus children, you know, so in the old days, parents were the enemy, but today, a lot of retailers will tell you that. That kids are shopping with their parents. That's something that they're seeing, especially in apparel. I don't know about food. Another really, really important category for grocery or dichotomy is producer versus consumer. And obviously today, one of the biggest marketing stories out there is the gig economy and this idea that everyday consumers are now becoming taxi drivers but they're also becoming chefs right, right. You know, they're also they're also creating food blogs and, and instagram posts etc um and in the process hopefully the smarter companies have figured out that th- the, this is your best source for new product development are you are your best customers or are, are your avid customers yeah and again that's where the upsell comes in because your customers can tell you, well, yeah, I like this, but it would pair really well with that, you know, and yes. that's not something you guys make, but it would be good for you to know that, you know?
1: Yeah. I I, I think in, you know, food marketing, at least, you know, in the food retail industry, uh, you know, for the most part, I think retailers have generally done a fairly good job of aligning their product assortment with the, the neighborhoods or the communities they're serving, right? Uh, you know, in the typical supermarket, you know, conventional supermarket carries 30,000, 40,000 different uh, SKUs. So there's a massive selection there. And, you know, certainly as Michael, you just spoke to, you know, the technology is there today and more and more retailers are making use of this to use AI expert systems, machine learning to understand of those 30 or 40,000 SKUs, you know, which ones are most important to each individual customer and, you know, developing, you know, complex profiles and
2: so on around that. So marketing is a really interesting place to be these days. <laughs> uh, interesting is one way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the old curse, may you live an interesting time. <laughs> yes, we are. Indeed, you know, but and when you talk about, t- I know you guys are big into technology, uh, you know, another. Another observation made by someone who doesn't have to write the checks is, you know, where's augmented reality in the grocery store? And you know, I, I've been working with augmented reality for for actually before it was popular. <laughs> and you know, it, even at the time we were talking about, the, and this is where the upsell comes in. You know, when when you can activate uh, uh, with your with your device, let's say, hold up a package of uh, pasta. And you can bring up a a hologram of a chef using that pasta in a recipe and showing you all the other, you know, products that you need with that. Boom. It's, it's to me, very powerful, uh, not to mention in a place like the pharmacy section of the, of the store where you could have a doctor pop up and say, now don't forget, don't take this with that pill, you know, things like that. Um, Really using the the store space as a much more interactive medium and and remembering that especially kids, but again, not only kids, but, you know, uh, these kids have grown up in a digital environment, right? We call them digital natives for a reason. And when you look at the data, it's pretty scary to us old guys, but, you know, at this point, the average uh, younger person is spending, let's call it 11 hours a day in front of a screen. 11 hours a day yeah. number is up very very sharply from even a few years ago right so as a as a grocery retailer you're saying well you know fish where the fish are i need to understand these kids if they're if i can get them in the store at all they're not just going to stay home and order online That's Right. but the point is you can get them in the store by creating you know an interactive experience i mean Look, we ha- we have an entire phenomenon in our culture called food porn. You're probably aware of that term, right? Kids love yeah. to take pictures of food. Why, you know, you go into fa- into fashion-related stores, there are literally selfie, you know, kiosks there and things like that. Right. Don't you think that kids would do that with food? I mean, a place yeah. like Wegmans where they're, they're giving away samples and so on, why, why isn't there any interactivity there?
0: Right. So when you think about... You know these trends, and what do retailers have to do to adapt to these trends? Right, there is obviously investment involved. There is, you know, in some cases, perceived. You know, I guess the perception is scarier than reality, which is that it's probably a wholesale change. And you know, and food retail has traditionally been a very low-margin business. So the you know, most retailers tend to invest in technology only when it's completely proven, right? And they know they're going to get an ROI. It's not going to affect their bottom line. So when you when you're looking at trends like this, how does how do you think retailers should think about investment? Right. Because it can be scary. When you're running your business on one and a half to two percent uh, margins, you really don't have space to experiment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I I I get it. I I get that. But you know obviously you need you need if possible to have a, a longer term perspective beyond the quarter or the or the year and understand that relationship marketing is a long term process you know so yeah it it does it does cost some money but i you know it's not i wouldn't say that it's a technology spend necessarily what it is what you're saying is look you need to personalize and stimulate the the shopping, the in-store shopping experience. And you have to probably recognize that the industry will more cleanly bifurcate into those who will almost always shop online and those who still want the experience if you can provide it. And I would assume, you know, I don't know the numbers, but a a chain like Wegmans, you know, has proven that that at least for some consumers, they're willing to pay a premium for that experience. So my guess is that their margins are not the same as a more typical grocery store. Right.
0: Right. And that's interesting. We just, we just put out a report, uh, Michael, a white paper uh, on what's called the Omni shopper. These are shoppers who shop both online and in store. And what we found is they are twice as valuable than your in-store or your online only shoppers. So when you try to restrict people to, um, a channel, and you folk, and you, you're almost creating separate branding for your in-store and your online. Uh, you're unnecessarily, you know, segmenting your customers. The idea is, if you create a more holistic uh, experience across that that carries over from your in-store experience to your online experience, you attract customers on both fronts, and those customers tend to be way more valuable than people who just shop only in-store or only online. So.
2: Okay. Yeah, It's like, I've done some work with the insurance, with the auto insurance industry. And, you know, the, the more, obviously, the more policies consumers have with you, the more loyal they are, you know, uh, right. uh, but it's, it's all, you know, it, again, it's all about the, uh, this interactivity and, and understanding that, you know, the, the online, the online space has pros and cons, the offline space has pros and cons, don't try to make one do what the other should be doing. Right. So when you say that people are are shopping in both places, well, of course they are. but what does the online experience lend itself to? Well, obviously, convenience and and common you know and staples and commonly go- bought items, and maybe the provision of visual information. What is the right. what is the bricks and mortar experience? Well, that's your opportunity at at a at a very extreme level to turn your store into a Williams Sonoma and offer cooking classes <laughs> right. so that it's much okay. much more of an experience you know if you look at say and again look you know look don't look at your your own competitors benchmark across verticals look at look at a store like REI that has a i believe a vp of customer experience and where they actually, ha- my understanding is they take customers out on weekends, on camping trips to use the products in the store. Well, when you're selling wow. food, food and drink and other things, uh, are there, you're telling me there's not events and, and so on that are yeah. Yeah. appropriate? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. they're You yeah. know, use if you're going to maintain a, a physical space, and that's a big if, but if you are, Use it for what it's good at, not just as a warehouse.
0: Right. That right. uh, makes perfect sense to us. So, uh, you, you know, uh, Gary and I have been talking about segment of one in personalized marketing for God knows how long. Uh, more than we we're willing to admit, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah so so in in terms of the outlook that you see you know i mean we're coming out of the pandemic now fingers crossed you know everything's looking good probably all out of it uh, but, but you know there's obviously been some you know shifts right in the last two years in terms of how we eat how we even think about food for instance right and uh, you know when you think about that in in were to say hey would you place your bets on the changes that are going to happen in the next 5 years where are you putting your bets
2: um well you know my I would guess that there's been a lot more. Uh, let's say, call it a growth in communal decision making uh, regarding food, in in terms of menu planning and and that sort of thing, where where people are, as as in other areas of their life, you know, they're 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 getting a lot of consultation from others in their network, and I I don't mean even food influencers necessarily, although that's certainly the case. Uh, but just their their everyday networks, you know, and and I think and I also would guess that people are going to be more open to experimentation when it comes to their diet. Uh, in terms of trying different kinds of ethnic foods or things that they hadn't done before. And because, again, when you talk about these artificial categories, we love to set up you think about think about cuisines and restaurants. And, uh, you know, and you have your, you have your Italian, you know, what are we going to eat tonight? Italian, Mexican, you know, Chinese, whatever. Uh, But when you look at the way a lot of people are eating, it's more like a one of those big, I don't know if we'll have them anymore, those big international buffets where people are throwing stuff on their plate from all different countries and it's all just mixing together in some blob, you know, but that's the way, that's the way people are consuming today. They're are and, and this is a pun, but they're snacking, they're snacking on experiences. They're snacking on media. They're taking much smaller samples of things, if you, if you will. So they're sampling more things, but they're spending less time on any one of them. So it's almost like you have to, I think, reorganize your store to think about, to reflect what people are looking for with small bites and giving them, uh, you know, opening windows to other cultures and so on. Because again, with, you know, one of the things coming out of the pandemic is the huge diversity push. Well, that to me is a huge positive for the food industry, because what Mm -hmm. it tells me is people will be more. If they get, become more aware of other cultures, at, at everything, whatever that involves, well, don't you think they want to try their cuisine maybe? I don't know. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's actually one of the things that Costco does really well, because you know, every time I go into Costco, I know what I'm going to get in a general sense. I know, you know, I'm going to tissue paper and I'm going to pick up some chicken and some fish. And, but there's always this expectation that I'm going to see something new in the store. Right, there's going to be some new demo going on, some new food being sampled. So there is a freshness of experience every time I go in, but I don't necessarily get that same thing when I go into my local supermarket. It's right, pretty much, right. you know, it's 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 the same when I go in morning, evening, night, weekends. It's the same thing. And I think it's a good point. I think if there's supermarketers listening to this, this is something to maybe take in and maybe experiment in a couple of stores and see how that works out in terms of attracting a new demographic and reflecting the change in how people are thinking about food and you're absolutely right. I think in the last two years, uh, my wife and I have probably experimented on more types of dishes and different types of diets than yeah. we've ever done before. And, and, you know, and you're absolutely right. You know, she's probably talking to a friend of hers and says, I've tried this out and it's really helped me out with this. And we started trying it out. So I think this concept of network, cooking, if you could call it that, you know, is uh, definitely a bigger, it's more visible in the last couple of yeah. years.
2: And it's also, of course, the subscription boxes are part of that, as, as well, you know, but but what it is, it's, it's decentering the authority of the food pro- companies. In other words, it's, it's taking the, you know, the generation of recipes, because it used to be that, just like with media, we, you know, there were, there, there was a trickle down effect and there were leaders and followers and, you know, the Rachel Ray's of the world or, you know, whoever that the chef is dictates and you follow the recipe exactly. Right. I don't think people are quite as freaked out anymore if they don't follow the recipe exactly. Right. There's, yeah. a, there's a bit more innovation yeah. that, that they want to do. And, and more generally, they want to be proactive, you know? So, to, I mean, to your grocery listeners, I, you know, I would say, a, a good comparison in another vertical is, well, there, there's a few of them, you know, uh, I think it's Casper mattresses now that allows you to take a nap in their store. To try out the mattress. <laughs> and I mentioned the, I mentioned the REI example, uh, another one, Lululemon, you know, what are they doing to get even more customers in the store? They're actually offering yoga classes in some of their stores, classes, right? All right, yeah. cooking classes, there you go. Wine appreciation, whatever it is. These large pieces of real estate, I think, have to evolve, and you may have said this before, Have almost have to evolve to become a community center. Yeah. They're, right. they're offering services, and, and maybe it's all services related to nutrition. I don't know.
0: Right, so so the other side of this, obviously we haven't really touched upon, is the brand side, right? The, the actual consumer packaged goods companies, companies who make the stuff that are sold in these stores what do you think their role is and you know how does it change how does how does their marketing change because they've traditionally only been able to do segmented segment based marketing mm-hmm. right they very often don't necessarily have access to individual customer information so they're forced to do you know segment based marketing how, how how do you
2: think they should approach this whole yeah, well, well, again, I, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, you've got you've got to to segment it in in, in some way. Um, but uh, you know, for example, in the food industry, my under, my understanding is that I may be misstating this, but from what I, based on what I've been told, at least, well, at least one very very large food company that I'm aware of um, has actually reorganized its its marketing function to get away from the types of things that that you're talking about where now they're organizing by occasion. And so they would have a, you know, this would be snacks, right? This, this would be snacks. So it would be uh, snacks and beverages. And so they might have a tailgating, they might have a VP of tailgating, Mm -hmm. yeah you know. Interesting, uh, huh? So I I know that they've done that. I don't, I don't know how successful it's been, but it, it reflects a recognition that that the social context in which food is consumed is is tremendously important. And the reasons that people are consuming it have a lot, have to do a lot more than with just filling their stomachs. Uh, I think anyone would agree with that. You know, it's, you say, well, that's just common sense, but these are the reasons, you know, and with brands, I mean, the successful brands are the brands that tell a story. Number one, not just tell us what you are, you know, what you do, but they tell a story obviously that we want to hear, you know, so when you look at, I'm thinking of say uh, what uncle Ben's had, had to do, you know, to shut down that or change that brand as, as the culture changes. So there's a very well-known story that is no longer acceptable in our current zeitgeist, you know? So my point is that you have to not only create the story, but don't just rest on your laurels and make sure that that story continues to evolve. You know, if you look at, a brand like, say, Betty Crocker, and you look at how many permutations of the, of the Betty Crocker image there have been over the years, I actually have this in one of my textbooks, you know, she's, she's changed, I'll say something like 10 times, but each change, you know, in each change is, is still building on the basic idea, but now she's much more Hispanic, for example, than she used to be. Yeah. So there's always, as you know, that delicate tension between totally revamping your brand and, 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 and not confusing people, you know, you have to find that happy medium, but that's how, that's why big brands need to crowdsource. They need to, and they need, and I'm sure some of them are doing this. They need to see the stories that their customers are telling about their brands.
0: Wow. This has been incredibly, uh, you know, interesting uh, conversation, Gary, anything, uh, Else, while we kind of wind down here. Uh, so.
1: No, Michael, this has been uh, great. I, I think very, not only very interesting, but I think very relevant to our uh, audience and, you know, the listeners that we have. So I thank you for being with us. I'm
2: yeah, yeah.
0: I wouldn't... Absolutely. And I would encourage anybody who is interested in learning more about Michael, go to michaelsolomon.com. He's got some great content. There is a list of all the books that he's written and podcasts that he's appeared on and speaking, you know, uh, little tidbits from speaking engagements he's been on. It's super interesting. So definitely a lot to learn here, but Michael, thank you so much for being on the retail perch. And by the way, you saw me sipping cups, a cup of coffee. And uh, if you send your mailing address to Stephanie, she'll make sure you get one of these mugs and as a thank you for being on the show. And the next time, maybe you can show up with a cup of coffee. In that cup. <laughs> oh no, it's been terrific, Michael. Any, anything that you'd like to add on here for people, uh, for our listeners?
2: You. Well, you, you know, you, I, I think Gary said earlier that it's an interesting time to be in marketing. I think it's an interest, really interesting time to be in grocery marketing because the potential for disruption. It's just enormous. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Well, it's been super interesting. And folks, you know, I hope you guys had a great time listening. You know, I know we took a little gap and came back, but this was a worthwhile wait for the next episode because uh, this has uh, been super. And, uh, Gary, anything else before we close out here? No, I think
1: we're we're good. We'll, uh, I'm sure, be talking again very soon.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you guys stay safe out there and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Michael, for being on the show. And thank you, Stephanie, for putting all this together. And uh, you can find more information at the retailperch.com. There's also plenty of past episodes, I believe we're in the 60s. Now, uh, Gary, we're episode number 63 or something wow. like that. So I guess we're no longer newbies on this. So uh, <laughs> you know, pretty soon, I think we're going to hit 100. That'll be exciting. But uh, yeah, Anyway, no, no, thanks. Course, thanks everybody for listening and supporting the show and spreading the word and uh, you know and keeping great guests like Michael coming along here. So, Michael, have a wonderful day. Stay safe, and we'll see you around on the face. Okay, thank you. thank you. Thank you. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at the Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook.
1: And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at the retail perch at birdseye.com.
0: Until next time, this is Shaker.
1: And this is Gary signing off.